Hello, everybody. This is Darren Redman, and I want to thank you once again for joining, joining us on the podcast again for the first time. This is somebody who I've wanted to talk to for quite a while. I've never met this person in person. We are Twitter pals. Maybe that's the best way to look at it. Um, I find her incredibly interesting. She has a wonderful story to tell. Uh, those of you who um, followed me in the old podcast, you know that um, my focus was on addiction and recovery. And I've always wondered, what was it like in other countries? What's the commonality? How are things different? And Alicia Benzina, we're going to talk about that in so much more. And again, I told her before we started recording that if I butcher her name, please understand. Um, <laughs> she has a wonderful personality. Um, we're going to talk about some real serious stuff. Maybe have a few laughs along the way. Alicia, thank you for being our guest today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. I couldn't even sleep last night, so <laughs> I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you. And, and I can tell you already, without being full of hubris, you're going to be helping some people because there are so many people who feel alone. And, and the world is as small as a Zoom meeting, right? As, as it's just... Yeah. It's just um, for those who don't know you, maybe tell people your story. Yeah. Um, so I am Alicia. Hello. <laughs> I'm in my Hello. late 20s. Hi. <laughs> um, I am a nurse. I work in the emergency department. Um, and I have a strong history of addiction and I'm currently five years drug free and three years alcohol free and have a lot of lived experience yes thank you took a lot to get here and I'm very proud of myself so if you don't mind us dialing it back a little bit and I'll, I'll go all over the map that's how I, I process things yeah um, I do it. tell me about your your childhood and and what I mean is what did you like to do? Did you always want to be a nurse? And, and like, how did things with um, um, addiction begin? I, I know my story. I was sort of a beer cans hanging around the neighborhood and my mm. dad, his friends were around. And that's how I started, you know? And, yeah. and that's what... Yeah, so. so I always, like when my addiction kind of kicked off when I was a teenager, I always wondered where it came from because my mum doesn't drink, my dad doesn't drink, they've never, they don't smoke, they don't do drugs, dad has never done any of that. But um, yeah, when I was a child, my mum my hadn't had much when she was growing up, so she kind of wanted me to do everything. Um, so I played a lot of instruments, I did ballet, tap dancing, I did sports. Um, was the captain of my soccer team for a long time. I loved it. You have um, what, position, what position? Pardon? What, what position did you play? You, oh, your I played, there was at some point I was playing 10 instruments. It was a lot. I played like, you know, baritone sax. You know how big that huh. thing is? I was yeah. playing that when I was in like year three. If the composer was ever like, Oh, I'm like really, I'd really like for this instrument to be in the band. My mom would go, Alicia would play it. Um, <laughs> Thanks, mom. Yeah. Um, like I did exams and stuff. I did violin exams, performed at like the Sydney Opera House a few times, did Which flute for a really long time. Gorgeous. 
it's yeah it's it's really nice but I just you know my heart didn't end up being in it um and how, how about also, on the soccer? you said you played soccer what position did you play in soccer football did you, did you uh, I was, yeah I was a defender I was always like center at the back um and that was like the best way to be able to look and see everything that was going on and I was very bossy and that was why my coach made me captain uh for quite well, a few uh, listen, years if you're playing center mid or you're playing one of those defender positions and you're pushing that ball up that pitch you better be bossy yeah that, that's it he said that once after one of the first games that he was coaching us, everyone was kind of like, oh, yeah, we lost, you know, and I was like one of the only people that was like pissed off. <laughs> and right. he was like, she needs to be captain. <laughs> he said that. So, yeah, it, okay. it worked. I think it was good. I had a really big boot as well. So, um, nice. yeah. Yeah, that sort of ended because when I was quite young, I was in year 10 at the time, so I was like 14 or 15, I tore my ACL. And then by the time I was 22, I had torn both of my ACLs. Um, but, yeah, that was a lot of my identity. And, yeah, I think that, were, you know, I, was, I didn't have a lot of resilience when I was growing up. Um, my, my parents really loved them and they really did their best. And, you know, especially as I've gotten older, I understand um, why they did the things they did, but they... Where they come from like European migrants that, you know, lived through war and like under fascist regime. And, you know, my father's mother was a refugee in Italy um, for quite a while. And yeah, they just, you know, have an idea of just get on with it. And for a child, you know, you just need to be like comforted sometimes. And I had, I had something quite traumatic happen to me when I was very young and I actually had forgotten about it until I was like a teenager and it kind of, you know, when I was very young, I think all my moods started, started to become quite clingy and like my parents just never really understood and I would like, you know, be upset very easily and even my teachers would say things like, I don't know she just like you know she gets fixated on things and I also had undiagnosed ADHD and that's something I still haven't told my parents because I'm diagnosed and medicated now and they never would have understood that or recognized that um yeah so I think having a traumatic experience and like my grandmother died when I was very young as well and she had been like my mother for the first period of my life and having undiagnosed ADHD, but being, you know, a gifted child, like in air quotes, um, and then that kind of, you know, your brain not being able to keep up with the workload as you get into adolescence, it sort of all made this perfect storm of me to be like unmedicated, undiagnosed, um, not know who I am, have this conflict of identity between you know, people saying, oh, you're not like Australian because you're a wog, you know, that's what we, it's a word that we use in Australia and like we've reclaimed the word and, you know, it, but I don't speak any other language other than English and it just, yeah, I just didn't know who I was and people being like, you're not even white. In Australia, they do things like that um, and 
yeah, it was just hard for me. And I started drinking when I was, I think, 12 was the end of year seven. And me and my friend got, my friend Valentina, she's so beautiful, just reconnected with her recently. We got drunk off cooking brandy. I don't know if you've ever had that on its own. I'm nodding. It's, yeah, I do not recommend it. Um, But yeah, that was, and that was the start, I guess. And then I started smoking a lot when I was 14. I think it was just, you know. I'm gonna stop stop you there. Yeah, go on. With with me, just jump in because I interrupted. I can just walk, I can just wax lyrical all day. So just, yeah. That's pretty awesome. Um, The drinking I get, see like, and we'll just go back and forth sharing war stories, but because you can kind of sneak that. The smoking, I had a lot of fear that, oh, they're gonna smell it on my breath, they're gonna smell it on my clothes. Were you not caring at that time? I mean, did you like, oh, did you know you can get away with it? I just, I think it really just was rebellion at that stage. I I was so upset, like, you know, in hindsight, I see everything for like what it is. And I'm sure even as I get older, I'll have more clarity, but Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was feeling. I was so angry and I didn't, I just was so upset with my family. I felt like they didn't take care of me and I didn't understand my feelings and I just didn't care if I upset them, it was like, good. And it's, yeah, I just, I can't imagine having children and them doing that to you. But, um, and I, you know, have really patched things up with my family. But I, yeah, I really like put them through hell. And that was because I felt so bad and mm-hmm. I just didn't care. And so when I say that my my parents, I didn't know where like these addiction problems came from. My parents didn't have addiction problems. But if you look back further, the father on my dad's side, he had addiction problems. Um, and my father on my mother's side, he also did as well. He used to drink a lot, used to get into car accidents. Um, he used to smoke a lot. I think I started by stealing some of his cigarettes and then my friend gave me a fake ID that didn't always work, but, um, well, like it was her old ID. I won't say her name, but, um, yeah. And so I used to just buy cigarettes, used to buy cigarettes for a lot of people and myself included. And yeah, it just, I'm just spraying myself. Sorry, excuse me. With impulse to have mouthwash in my bag. Didn't really do the job. I'm just, I just flat out deny really horrible mum would be like you smell I'd be like no I don't just deny deny just yeah I'm it's a very different life to what I live now (laughs) but But, you know it's interesting as I look back both my parents at the time were smokers so I could have easily got away because they smell like smoke but I Mm. was so obsessed on that that I would worry um the drink was never a problem because I just felt like that I can get away with, you know, but that was the line of the smoking was, I just, and then of course, you know, you end up getting over that. Um, but um, yeah, you just go, oh, well. Yes. So I don't go into what it was specifics, but when you realize that there was some trauma there, 
Yeah. Walk, walk us through that. Did you just wake up with an epiphany? Was it a slow sort of emerging, can't sleep at night kind of thing? Um, it is, no, it was, so I was in a relationship with, I think it was my first partner and mm-hmm. it just one day, like my, it was literally just like a veil lifted. You know how people yeah. talk about like blacked out memories and I was just like, mm-hmm. whoa, and we, it just was lifted and I just was so upset and I was, I was just telling him what happened and I was really angry at him that he had like triggered that in me and yeah, he was, and I'm still friends with him and he's a, he's a very lovely man, but um, it was a lot for me. And then um, I tried to, I think a couple months passed and I was like, I have to like, you know, tell my family this. And um, I told one of my parents and then they had said, you know, like, oh, like don't, don't tell anyone sort of thing. And I just wanted to be comforted and... Sure. Um, it just sort of comes with the European territory, Mediterranean territory. We just kind of, you know, just for appearances. And it really annoyed me. And I think it sort of formed part of my identity where I used to just overshare things a lot to people because I had grown up so different from that and everything was so, like, rigid in my upbringing. And I think that probably also impacted me wanting to smoke and do things that like you're not supposed to do um yeah and but it was just literally like you know like click your fingers and then it just was all revealed to me and um kind of it just hit you it It just just literally yeah it was like like the curtain just dropped and like oh wow okay I totally remember it clearly and yeah, and it was like my body had never forgotten, you know. I've been meaning to read that book before. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't. Um, but, yeah, and it, it very obvious. And in hindsight, I see how obvious that was. So when you started to go deeper and deeper into um, drugs, let's just kind of talk about that. Was yeah. it was it meth? What, like what, what, where so, I was? was it was pills and pot that was the big yeah. thing so I had a bit of dare I say unique <laughs> but um kind of bit okay. of unique. Okay. unique yeah no it was um yeah very strange but um you know I didn't have a lot of money and um I think i tried to buy a pot once off this guy at school that ended up going to jail not long after school. But, um, and he sold me some oregano or whatever. And I was like, "Mm, okay. And, you know, I didn't know how to be like, this is not what I paid for. And it was like really awkward. And so- This is a cooking substance, it's oregano, it's not pot. Yeah, and, but like, you know, being like a young girl that's not very confident in herself, I was sort of like, mm, okay, cool, thanks. And, um, yeah, so another way that me and my friend Melinda used to just, oh, I'll just come out with it, but we used to go to the shop and we used to steal deodorant. Mm. And, 
we used to just inhale cans and cans of deodorant. Sure, and that, that was, was big. Yeah, it was really big here. Um, and we used to drink a lot as well. We used to go to park parties. And I cannot believe now, because it's winter in Australia, it is so cold, probably not as cold as it gets in America. But we used to go throughout the whole year. We would say, oh, hey, mum, I'm going to Steph's house. Um, I'm going to sleep over. And she goes, okay, like, you know, let me know when you get there. And you'd text her or call her when you're with Steph. And you'd just be at the park all night while it's like four degrees, like four degrees Celsius. But yeah, and it sort of just kind of, you know, snowballed that way. And we'd go to friends' houses and smoke joints or my friend got me onto bongs. We, bongs are really big in Australia, um, smoking cones. And, yeah, and it sort of just went that way. Um, and I didn't really like alcohol, to be honest. Even when I was, like, at the height of my addiction, when I was, like, 21, 22, it just never was, just made me a bit too messy. Um, yeah, so my when I really started to fall into addiction, I think weed was the worst thing for me. I just, I would, we, I don't know if it's a universal phrase, but we say wake and bake. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, and it would just like. And then then you'll eat something. Yeah, or I just would crawl back into bed and be like, ugh. Right. Um, Yeah, and so that was quite dysfunctional but like yeah and getting into psychedelics a lot as well and we do names too um, See that, those always interested me but I was afraid that I would not come back from that mm. I, I had a lot of fear of those and, and that, the only thing that kept me away from that is is fear you know yeah uh, yeah, but, uh, I think I had a bit of a like psychological dependence for quite a while. For about 18 months on LSD, I was literally taking like like one to three tabs every mm-hmm. week. And then I got to a point where I just kept having a bad trip, but I wanted to end on a good one. And it's like, <laughs> you know, and I just like kept doing it and it yeah, it was just a really bad time um, and I just had no one to pull me out of it, you know. I'd kind mm. of fallen out with my family because I was just so mad at them and felt like they hadn't protected me when they had just done the best that they could. Um, yeah, and oh, I'd, like, had an, uh, falling out with my family when I was in year 11 and we just... Um, like in the second last year of school and I stopped living at home and I still managed to finish year 12. I just scraped by, but, you know, I would often come to school and like pick up weed from someone and then be like, I'm going home and just leave. Right. <laughs> be like, does anyone want to come over? I was living with my friend that ended up being my boyfriend and he, he had the party house. So that was just not a great kind of not a, not a great setting to try and, you know, heal from trauma. I mean, it felt like it at the time, you know, that's why people start using to free themselves, but then it ends up becoming the jailer, you know? So here, here's, I'm gonna, here's where I jump all around the map. Um, so 
you identify, and I mean the general you, not you specifically, but let's talk about somebody in Australia who's around your age, identifies that they are um, dealing with trauma. Yeah. Not addiction. Tell me about, mm. about the health facilities, the, what if you just like you and I at that age, scraping by, you know, flipping burgers, you know, serving coffee, are there avenues for you to go to? Or if you have no insurance, you're out of luck. How do, walk me through that process. And what's that process like? Yeah. So in Australia, we have Medicare. And Medicare is pretty great for the most part. It needs Good. way more funding. Um, and the government constantly is like reducing the budget for health. But for someone of my age, um, 15, 16, when I realised I had all this trauma and, you know, was like, this has actually really affected me, um, I, you can go to your, I think in America, primary physician or like a GP, we call them here. Um, and you can get, yeah, you can, you don't need insurance, but if oh, you... Yeah, but you can get something that's called like a mental health plan and you can get access to 10 free sessions. Sometimes they're just like largely subsidised, but that's in a whole year. And you can go to a counsellor or like a registered uh, registered psychologist, I think, um, and you can have access to them. It's just that for consultations, there's a long wait. And for psychiatry, if you need medications um, that's not really subsidised, there's ones that um, do bulk bill, which is just, you know, covered by Medicare. And right. they are, in my experience, not great. Usually don't have lived experience. This is a generalisation, but that was my experience with the two psychiatrists I saw that were bulk billed. Incredibly long wait. Um, like six plus months, um, not not in every area. So you might have to travel quite a bit. Um, yeah. And so if you want psychiatric medications, you might just have to get it through your GP and they just hand out SSRIs. They just mm -hmm. give it and don't give you great education on like, you know, you should be taking this at the same time every day these are side effects. It's kind of just like, here you go. Everyone's on Prozac. Um, this will help, you know. And we, we, we're dulling their pain instead of treating their pain. And, yeah. And or validating wonder, it even, you know. Yes, yes. And, and you wonder why they become addicts and relying on that instead of working on the issues and working on the problems. Um, tell me about your nurse now. Tell me about the fentanyl situation in Australia, because it's absolutely devastating here in the United States. For example, in the, in the city of San Francisco last year, this is fact, more people died of a fentanyl overdose than of COVID. Wow. I knew it was bad. I didn't know it was that bad. Mm -hmm. And I know that you guys got like ripped by COVID as well. Um, yeah. Wow, that's shocking. Yeah, so it, we, San Francisco, it's in towns, but but yeah. In fact, the, law, the number one killer of people between the ages of 15 and 35 in America is fentanyl. 
Wow, that's really bad. I was actually looking at some data recently. I was looking at um, journal, like a journal called Addiction. They're, they're really great. I was reading so much stuff. Um, and Australia hasn't really had a pill epidemic like America has because um, I just don't think that we ever I think there was like a push for like oh, without sounding like a conspiracy theorist but you know there was like a big push to increase like opioid sales and whatever mm-hmm. which kind of like fueled it but we never really like have anything like that in Australia we don't really have like ads for drugs and things like that and we do have a bit of like a heroin problem but we are we have like a national drug strategy which has like three pillars um so there's like demand reduction supply reduction and harm reduction and they all try to push together to make harm minimization and yeah i don't think that we we don't have a huge fentanyl problem here. The, I feel like the main problem for, well, at least in Australia, um, is meth. And in in places like WA, which is a huge state, like Western Australia, there's a lot mm-hmm. of Indigenous communities and they have just been, like, ripped apart by meth. I was reading a lot of data on it because I'm doing a postgrad certificate at the moment in addiction and yeah it's it's been really bad um and it has been for a long time yeah walk me through that because we have pockets of the country where meth is still just devastating you see these folks and pictures of them two years prior and they look like a shell of who they once were um, yeah walk me through the indigenous population problem with the meth and what's going on and then let's uh, segue into what we talked a little bit about uh, texting back and forth where treatment and the lack thereof yeah yeah so just to like touch on my own history as well I have ADHD and really interestingly I kind of didn't even talk about this but my main problem as I sort of left adolescence ended up being prescription pills and uh, opioids and that was a very big problem for me and that was the main reason why I stopped and they aren't really that easy to get in Australia so a lot of people turn to heroin um, and you know that varies a lot and you do notice that there's like fentanyl in the heroin when you're using it sometimes you can like taste it and yeah and sometimes you'd use it and you'd be like oh shit it would just you'd be like oh no and you'd know that like like lucky I'm with people sort of thing but yeah with the with the meth problem the interesting thing is that when you when the when like border forces stop I was looking at some data when they had stopped quite a few methamphetamine shipments coming in like really large scale it didn't really have much effect long term on the methamphetamine use within Australia. And it is a thing that is largely produced by bikies in Australia because you can right. you can make it with so many different products. And mm. that is 
one of the biggest problems. So it's not, you know, we don't have to, the the supply reduction is very difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so it can, yeah, it can kind of just, it can be really hard to tackle. And in communities, like Indigenous communities in Australia, I don't know if like the rest of the world knows how badly Australia has, like the history of Australia, Australia's treatment of Indigenous communities, but we have just like destroyed them. Um, you know, we came, white settlers came and they just introduced all these things, you know, smallpox, alcohol, sugar. There's, you know, they the Indigenous populations died t- on average 10 years earlier. They have all these other health problems that are way worse. Um, well, let me tell you something. America has a disgraceful history with our Native Americans as well. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's really awful. And we have a national strategy to try and like close the gap. That's what it's called. But um, they are incarcerated at like such, like an enormously higher rate. Um, you know, they might live, they might have different ways to communicate with their children that white people think, oh, this, like, isn't right. Um, we had a stolen generation thing where they, I shouldn't say thing, it was abhorrent, and they took away children, especially ones that were, like, Indigenous but fair-skinned, and they tried to assimilate mm-hmm. them into white culture, and they have this inherited trauma, like, you know, intergenerational trauma. and. It Im- yeah, and it impacts their addictions, you know. It, it leads to things like that and it is so hard to get treatment, like, regardless of being, like, white or, you know, mixed race or Indigenous. And particularly in, in WA, for example, they're so remote, literally, like, WA, I can't, I can't give you specifics, but it would be, like, quite if it would be like probably six states of america in like certain parts it's massive to fly from sydney to perth like either end it's like four and a half hours like um you know if you're in europe you can go over like quite a few countries and there's they're just so isolated you know it's very large but there's a lot of desert and you know remote communities and stuff and it's just so hard for people out there to break out of that cycle um you know and they have connection to country um and so if when you remove them from their country and their family it's like very hard for them spiritually and socially it's it's a big thing i don't look i'm i'm mistake driven right I'm, i make many, many more mistakes and get things right as a human person um without sounding redundant but what's with the rationale that people must live and assimilate the way that we do? Where did that come from? What if it happened to just kind of let people be? And by the way, through organic osmosis, I'll pick up traditions from you. You'll pick up some traditions from me. And, and it happens organically. But instead, we want to take their children or we want to. Mm. you can't live that way you you have to live this way because we know better i don't yeah. understand don't understand that I, and i never will and I, I i think i'm a pretty educated person i have a master's in education and uh, i 
love reading and, and, and go down some of the rabbit holes that I do late at night. That's what it's about. It's just abhorrent. I used that term earlier. It really is. Um, yeah, it's, it's really awful. And, you know, the stolen generation was like this span of time where it was like actual programs where they would take children and sort of try and put them into like white families and stuff and you it is spoken about and thought about as being like in the past like it's finished but when I went to uni just what four or five years ago one of the tutors there was like in her 50s maybe approaching her 60s she was quite fair and she was indigenous and she was a stolen child that's not long ago no that's, yeah, and it's still, so maybe the, the program has changed, but Indigenous children are removed by, like, DCJ, like the Department of Children and Justice, um, at incredibly high rates. And it's, you know, it's, it's quite difficult for, from, from my perspective as a nurse, because I work in paediatrics as well, it's difficult for a child to be taken away from their family and you know there has to be like quite a few reports made about concern for the child but not if you're indigenous doesn't take very much at all and so the stolen generation sure is finished but it's happening on just a different sort of level now and these laws were built on not thinking about indigenous people as equal and it just doesn't it's not helping oh no it, 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 they can recategorize it uh, and again we have some of that going on here a lot of it quite frankly um yeah with franchise uh people here um i want to talk a little bit about treatment and yes. lack there and um we, we talked about meth um what yeah was i the, think yeah, so um, with current treatment is just not, it's really inaccessible for people. I, from my professional experience, people come into the emergency department and I, I work in, you know, a very, uh, like a large, busy, like trauma center. We are, we're attached to like a mental health facility. We are like, you know, where people come from other, like quite far out to come to our hospital. They think that like ours is the best hospital. I see people waiting for treatment, you know, going to mental health or requesting detox and stuff. And they're in the emergency department for like five days that were like two, three you know, that like, it's a lot and it's not a therapeutic place for people. And if no. you don't go into the emergency department, it's really hard to get a place in a private, a private um, facility. And you need in that way, you need to have, um, you need to pay up front and it can be like a thousand dollars a day Australian. And that's a lot. Um, right. And uh, so I, I know like a handful of people that really needed to get into, into treatment and they were like, the only way I can do this is like if I go in like a residential facility 
and they have to go and get private health and then you have to wait a month, two months, three months, depends what, what thing you go with. And you just have to wait or you can't fork it out yourself. Um, oops, sorry. And uh-huh. yeah, um, in, so the success rate as well in um, the traditional sort of treatment stuff, I was looking at some data for assessments that I was doing recently and I think they do it on purpose. They don't, they don't have very much, these facilities don't have very much follow-up with clients to rate or, you know, measure how effective the treatment was. And these, these things just don't really work. And for something like meth, I think it's, I I was looking at, I was looking at um, some statistics for it. And it's something like as low as like nine to 12% of people that have a meth problem seek treatment. And within that, within that small margin, only like 10% of them are able to remain, you know, meth free. And within Australia as well, it is such a big problem, you know, and we had these ads when I was growing up, they used to be like on the TV, people like picking their skin and then it's like meth, don't even try it once, you know? Um, And they spent a lot of money doing those ads to try and like, you know, uh, demonize it really and be like, don't do it even just once. But it's really hard to get into a facility. I've never tried to get into a facility myself, but I know a lot of people that have and friends have said they've had to ring around to so many different facilities and places just don't take meth users and other places say oh we we only have um it's just like company policy we only take 10 percent of only 10 percent of our clients can be meth users and like why you know I understand I've, I've seen that when people get like meth-induced psychosis, it's often, compared to other drugs, it can be very, you know, very confronting, can be very hard to manage. But, like, what is the alternative? What We just let people perish. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately that's, the, that's the alternative. And we have that situation again here. You know what? Listen, it's a dedication to solve the problem issue. Australia is a very big place. America is a very big place. We can get enough beds. We can train enough people. And I'm just talking extemporaneously. For example, mm. if you know, I just went through med school and I have $150,000 student loan debt, maybe you know, I can go work here to, in these treatment facilities, still get a stipend and use that to pay down my loan. There's very creative ways that we can make this thing happen to help mm. make people live and exist. Instead, it's easy to demonize. Hey, they made their own choices. They knew what they were getting into. Like for example, when you show a commercial, and we have similar commercials here, where they're picking the skin and the black in the teeth, and that is very ineffective to somebody who already has a meth problem. They're already addicted. Yeah. You know, it, it, you're trying to- yeah, you look like this is like, yeah. you know. Yeah. You're making me feel worse. Thank you very much. 
You know, yeah. I mean, maybe you're scaring, you know, little Thaddeus and, and Mary from becoming meth addicts, but the people that need the help, that is just, you just flush that, that money down the toilet. That could have been better served doing that and trying to help these people. Uh, they need a place to go. Um, that's why okay. I'm, and I want to double back to something. So you're a nurse and we talked about opioid situations. Naloxone, it's Narcan here. Is, yeah. it readily, is it readily available to people? Because right now we give it away. You, you, you can go, the state has so many different places that, well, you can buy it for about 120 American dollars, a box and yeah. a Narcan. Uh, but a lot of places give it away. Um, and we're trying to tell people now, it's like having a EpiPen. You, mm. you should have a house just in case because they're putting fentanyl in everything these days. That fake Xanax bar can kill you. Yeah. And so, so talk to me a little bit about naloxone, Narcan. Do you, is it accessible to people? Um, not, not as much as it should be. So when I was at the height of my use, it, they had brought in, so this was maybe seven, seven or so years ago. We have like, um, yeah, they had brought in this uh, take-home naloxone kind of program. And we, in, in the year 2000 in Sydney, we had opened a um, medically supervised injecting centre or like MSIC, that's what the, the users, you know, we just used, used that phrase. But, um, yeah, and that's really great. And that was with a lot of um, backlash, but it has a lot of, it has a lot of benefits, you know, like needles not being thrown in the street. And that's like, there's data to prove that, you know, overdoses, no one had a fatal overdose that had overdosed in MSIC. Um, and then this, it created this sort of doorway for other harm reduction programs to be made. And so there's, this is in um, King's Cross, which is one of the biggest, it's notorious for being, you know, like a crime and drug sort of, and like, sex kind of area um yeah so it opened the doorway for things like a needle and syringe program and you know um krc i don't actually know what that stands for but when so when i was using you could get naloxone but you needed to go to a course and it's at krc i'm pretty sure it's free and everything is free you go to the go to get clean syringes from uh, NUA. It's uh, New South Wales Users and AIDS Association. You go there, you don't have to pay. They just give you everything you need. You go to MSIC, you can just walk in, um, can give them a fake name, just tell them what you're using, what you've got on board and just go and use. Um, and yeah, and then you could go and get this take home naloxone. Um, if you go to KRC, but you have to go to like a day course for it. Uh, and it's just not, it's not really that available. And even, um, even to get, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? To get onto like replacement therapies, you know, like bupe and methadone, it's quite difficult. Um, and it's, you know, it's quite stigmatized as well. It's just 
Like, why would someone, you know, when I was trying to get clean, I sort of was thinking about it and I asked my doctor and he was like, oh, like stays on your permanent record, whatever that means. I don't, like, what what does that mean? Okay, I think dying from an overdose would also be on my permanent record. Yeah, because your yeah, yeah, permanent record is a tombstone. I mean, yeah, you know. like, okay, so I just had to, you know, fail getting sober many times. Um, but, yeah, so the no is the answer, very roundabout way of answering, but it's it's not really that that um available i'm not a user anymore so maybe it's become a bit more but from what i know professionally and what i um know from my friends um that still use i don't talk to them heaps but i do engage with them sometimes and yeah it's not really i actually know someone that worked for the harm reduction uh one of the harm reduction programs and you know they're accepting of people that are users and stuff and she was with my friend and um they're they're both using and he overdosed he's actually passed away now from an overdose sadly he's the same age as me and she she lost her job because she she administered naloxone to him and then had to have an ambulance come and she lost her job but that was she worked for the harm reduction program. It didn't really make sense to me. And nor should it. And it, it, it yeah. first, that's disgusting. Um, yeah. I, I know here there are laws in place that theoretically would make that not happen. That mm-hmm. the minute that you make a call or the minute you administer that naloxone, it's an emergency scene. It's not a crime scene. It's you're trying mm-hmm. to get healthy. That's the bottom line. Um, yeah we've had situations where people were afraid to report things because of that they're going to get in trouble they're going to lose their job yeah yeah and and, and let's talk a little bit about and then i want to talk about your recovery um Mm. but let's talk a little bit about shame and stigma because I, i think those are the silent killers uh the drug might kill you but that parent, well-meaning parent can't tell your friends you have problems, can't tell your job that you have problems. Well, if I'm, a, if I'm recovering and I'm at my job and I'm feeling triggered and I'm feeling something, I shouldn't, if I'm feeling a heart attack, I'm going to go and tell somebody I'm feeling like I'm going to have a heart attack. But if Absolutely. I'm feeling I need to use and it's overwhelming and I come to you and I say, Alicia, I need help. I, I, I'm, I'm an addict. I shouldn't be fired for trying to get help. But that's what yeah. happens. Yeah, or absolutely. I'm, or if I'm trying to get a job and I mentioned yes, and I was, well, Darren, it shows here that you didn't have a job from 2019 to early 2021. Do you want to tell us what happened? What you're telling me, and I tell advocate, you're going to have to lie. Because if yeah. I said, if I said, you know, use my name as an example. Well, I was in detox. I had a, had, a, had a pill problem. You know I'm not getting that job. I'm just not. So I yeah. have to walk. talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I uh, Stigma is just such a... Uh, it just reaches everyone. And I don't think people, you know, people don't realise how, like even, you know, from, from a, a healthcare worker's perspective, 
perpetuating this uh, this like attitude of stigma and like discrimination, it actually affects us as well. Um, and you know, if if there's stigma amongst like amongst physicians, it 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 affects them and how they feel. You know, prescribing things. And actually, have always just thought it was really strange. I remember, I remember a medical center that I used to go to a lot. They have this big sign in the waiting room that says, "We do not prescribe drugs of addiction at this center." And I didn't know why. I thought maybe you know at the time, oh, I'm you know I'm an addict. Maybe I just find that annoying. But I just, as a professional, I mean, I'm not a prescriber, but like I'm a nurse, I'm a clinician. I just find it so strange, that attitude. So what if a drug of addiction is the most appropriate medication for your patient? You're just not going to go down that road. It's really bizarre. And, you know, it affects... It's sad. It's sad. It's weird. So if someone's coming to you with like panic disorder... And you're gonna go, no, I'm not gonna not gonna prescribe Xanax or someone with like, you know, forcing chronic pain patients to sort of taper off these medications that work for them and they use them and it, you know, they use them long term without abuse. But even I have this attitude when I when people come in um, to the emergency department and I've taken over care of them and they obviously have addiction issues. Some people disclose it. Some people, you know, I don't want to be judgmental, but you can kind of just tell. Um, you can look at what, like, their previous admissions are for and you go, well, you can kind of piece it together. If they request pain relief, people are so quick to go, no, you know, are they, you know, drug-seeking or whatever. People are so scared to prescribe these people opioids or, you know, they'll go, oh, can I have some Valium? And, you know, well, I, I always go and ask the doctor and people sort of go, no, like, absolutely not. But in my mind, if this person is using heroin and they're using 100, 200 milligrams, you know, like a point, a two, two points, you know, some people use half a gram even, what is five or 10 milligrams of, you know, one or two tablets of endone? What, what's the harm? You know, I understand. No, 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 no pun intended. You're absolutely right. Literally, you're, just, like, you're playing just, the long game. You're showing the person grace and thinking long term. You want this person to live and and whatever. People are like, oh no, we can't do that because we're adding to the problem. No, you're not. No, you're yeah. not. You, you I um, validates. You know, validates their experience, and you know, a lot of harms can come from drug use. You know, I was just looking after this young man the other day. He was trying to change his life and he'd gone to the airport and poor thing he was really intoxicated on a lot of things and he fell over and he smacked his head and he came in and even it was the end of my shift and I was getting over it and was like you know and this guy goes can I have some can I have some endone and sort of like yeah yeah and then he fell asleep he had like a bleed in his brain and even me because I was so tired. I was like, oh, does he like actually have pain? He had a massive bleed in his brain. Of course he had a headache and we kind of just go, and that's me as well. Someone with lived experience being like, uh, you know, being like, yeah, I'll, like I'll get to it, but it affects physicians. They get worried about, Oh, like I can't prescribe that. Someone's going to, 
you know, someone's going to judge me or they'll, they'll not want to treat a patient that has like chronic pain problems. So they'll refer them somewhere else or, you know, and they kind of just get the run around and, you know, and also me since being medicated, um, which took a long time, but I was doing drug testing for a long time. So that kind of put my formal ADHD and like mental health diagnosis on the back burner, but it helps me stay sober. I'm medicated now and like, you know, having being having a diagnosis of ADHD and having like stimulant medications, which I've never abused and it, it helps. And like, that's not all there is. Total abstinence is not, it doesn't work for everyone. It's It's, not. Thank you. And we need to realize that we need to realize that that's a wonderful goal, but if we want people to live and thrive and excel and, we need to find something that works for them. And it's like I tell people, you know, 12 steps program doesn't work for everybody either. You know, yeah. you what, what works. That brings up an interesting question before I talk about your, your recovery. Zaboxone, is it used a lot in Australia? Yeah. So, um, yeah, and they, they do use it uh, in jail quite a bit as well. Um, but I know that people smoke it in jail. I know a friend that went to jail and, you know, he had a bit of a habit and then it ended up being a lot worse when he came out because they just smoke it in jail. Well, not just, but, you know, that's definitely a way to use it. But um, I'm not 100% sure how things work in America. But here, when you get on Suboxone, um, you know, obviously there's like risk of precipitated withdrawal if you've got things in your system already. So like if you've used within like the last day or two, if you've used an opioid and you take Suboxone, you can get very sick. So they do, you know, they do piss test people and stuff. Um, But it's also just like, like I for a while was getting it like without a prescription um, I had a friend that was like giving me a couple like really early in my recovery um but just it was it it seemed really difficult to get a hold of and she had also said like yeah it's really hard you know and you have to go somewhere every day it's like are we trying to break the cycle of like waiting to see my dealer every day because it seems the same and it seems like I've got more stigma rocking up to this place and that, that, you know that, that's my big concern with methadone clinics you're anchored to that one specific clinic you have yeah. to some, you're, you're your official user and then there's all these other impulse you get more judgment you get more judgment yes. than like waiting on the corner for your dealer that like you know, knows no bullshit and knows, oh, this person's probably withdrawing now. And like, you know what I mean? It's like, no. it doesn't make sense to me. Just order it on your, your, your phone app and have it delivered to your home. You don't even need the corner anymore. Yeah. You know? So yeah, it's crazy. And as well, like you get booted off, you get pushed off the, the program if you have a dirty piss or like, right. you know, a positive result, which doesn't make sense. We actually have, um, a, th- a program for methamphetamine that's um really it's not really well known but it's called the matrix and um it's about like calling people in and it's it's um instead of you know sort of ostracizing people that are that return positive like meth urine results they 
they go, oh, let's like talk about it. And it's, it's um, a program like specifically for meth. And it is a lot of people that help run it are ex-meth users themselves. Um, so they have that lived experience, but it's sort of the only program of its kind that I know. Um, yeah. So and it ha obviously has limited, um, and it's like in the community as well, which is another big thing. Uh, so right. people like come in and yeah, it's, but it's, yeah, there needs to be more sort of approaches like that where we call people into the conversation and going, what led you to, like you're already seeking, you know, That's treatment. What's, yeah. Go to the root cause as to why this happened. Um, yeah. And you need to do that. Um, and if you don't, you're basically just putting a bandaid on the situation and hope that things clear up. But you need to go to the root cause. You need to pull the root out of the weed, no pun intended, and figure yeah. out what caused this. So what was the impotence for you to get help? Why was that one day you said, I'm an addict, I need to get myself together? You know, yeah, so, yeah, there's, um, I don't know if you're familiar, I, I imagine you would be because you seem quite well studied, but there's like the cycle of change, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then there's like, you know, like no desire to change and then like pre-contemplation, contemplation and then like actual planning and then maintaining and relapse obviously is part of it. But I think for a long time I had, you know, I was, I was very ashamed um, and I had quite a few friends pass away and like just a lot of death in a short period of time and um yeah and I just didn't want that for myself anymore and you know I'd OD'd a few times and the first time it happened was really scary and I didn't use for a few days after and wasn't really that well um and then I got over it and then started using again <laughs> but um yeah a lot of people say to me because you know I don't really utilize AA don't really utilize NA um I do have a counselor that as well he has his own addiction history and he's like this he's like in his 70s and he's a nurse as well and is just so fantastic like he he has seen me at my worst and he's really pushed me towards recovery I've been seeing him for almost almost 10 years now I think but um yeah I just didn't really like want that for myself anymore and I thought like you know this the, there's three ways this goes I get I get better like I die or you know I go to jail that's that's how this goes I'm seeing how it goes um yeah and you know never having money being like really unwell like driving to pick up and like vomiting out of my car <laughs> like you know and then also thinking about like talking to my counselor he has a lot of extra he has a lot of extra qualifications so he can actually diagnose things um and him saying you know like it's not just I think being able to get help in that way helped me frame things and you know it's not just the drug use isn't the problem. Sure, it's no. made more problems. But it's the like, trauma. Yeah, and it's the, it's a symptom of all these things that have gone 
unresolved. And once I was able to kind of start to think about those things and then, you know, look at friends that were ending their lives that had like addiction issues, um, it just kind of started to be like, you know, like it doesn't have to be like this. Um, and a lot of people ask, like, how did you do it? You know, like I didn't go into formal treatment. I didn't go to NA. Um, I didn't go on Suboxone or Methadone. Um, but, you know, they're like, oh, you kind of just like stopped one day. But I didn't. I was relapsing every 10 to 14 days. It, it was 10 or 14. I just kept doing it. And it was just, you know, I'd use and then just like throw all my stuff at the wall and be like, why did I do that again? It's just over and over like that. And I just, yeah, and have, finding some purpose and being like, I want to do nursing, you know. And then um, I think as well when I went to get help and I told them that, like, oh, I'm, like, pretty early in recovery and, you know, I just had a couple, like a friend that was a couple and they'd just gotten married and then they ended their lives together a month later and it was just really hard for me Um and my uncle had passed away and there was just like a lot happening and didn't get any help. And I think in a way it kind of just like, he said, I'm going to report you. And then a long period of time passed and I actually thought that it had went away and it didn't. And they ended up like finding me and, you know, um, they ended up finding me and like, you know, having to go through all the psychiatric evaluation. This is like the nursing board. Um, but I had remained sober that whole time and it sort of, yeah, I sort of was like, I don't know, I was just like, screw you, you know, when he did that to me. Yeah, and I was like, no one is going to help me here and I just had to just pick myself up and I, I actually don't know how I did it. For someone that didn't have much resilience when I was younger, it, I, just, I just got sick of it. And no one was going to help me. I was so ashamed of potentially going into um, like treatment facility because there's no, I had private health, but there's no psychiatric cover. I could have, you know, gone into the private hospital and not had to pay much. But, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't working. I was on welfare. I was trying to study um, with like unmedicated and un, like not formally diagnosed ADHD, all this trauma that I hadn't unpacked properly. And yeah, it was like, for me to unpack all this, I need to be sober. I need to be clear headed, you know? And the clarity comes for a long time after. It just keeps, it just keeps coming. I want to ask a question that I wasn't originally going to ask before I get to my next question that I had planned to ask you. And that is, we hope nobody slips as a quote unquote relapse. But I don't like that term because yeah. I tell, unfortunately, some people, again, whatever works for people is great, but they, they're clean and sober. And we know there's a difference. You, you, you want to really be both, you know, be off the, the medication or the addiction, whatever it is is one thing, but then living a life that's productive and you feel good about yourself is part of it. But when somebody yeah. slips up, I wanna tell them, you don't throw out all the good stuff that you did, you, you, you slipped up. If, you, if, if, if I had a situation where let's say I had two and a half years of recovery and then I slip up one day, 
and I call you and you're my sponsor, you're my friend, and I say, Alicia, I effed up. I need, you know, I messed up. To me, yeah, that's it. That's that's you, you you're not an addict again. You know, you're not you, you relapsed, you slipped up. But you know what you need to do. You get back on the you get back on, on the beam and you, you work on it. There's gonna be that one-off on occasion. Don't throw away, I've seen people do this in horrible ways. Don't throw away all the good and start the woe is me. I had all this and I threw it all away. No, you messed up. We all do. You know, but and it's not okay that you messed up, but it's part of life. You need to move forward. Mm. You know, so I'm sure you've seen people, good people, they struggle and they 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 slip up, but you gotta tell them, I'm here for you, move forward. You can't you can't wallow in the fact that you messed up. You know, yeah, hundred um, percent. I find that a lot with all sorts of addicts, but with alcohol because it's just so around. Yeah. Somebody might pass away and then they, they take a swig of tequila or vodka and then they're, then they're ready to go into the woe is me's. No, just it happened, forget it, move on. Not forget, but move on. You can't throw away the 12 years of sobriety. I was a bouncer yeah. in New York 12 years and I've seen people do that dance, unfortunately, way too many times. Yeah. Um, you have a high pressure job, high pressure job, and you're in recovery. How do you how do you decompress, or when you feel that urge, or if you use feel that urge? But how do you find the time to sort of center yourself, and how do you do it? Yeah, it's a it's a big question. Um, I don't think that I do as much as I should be doing. Um, I do meditate a bit. A bit of my a bit of a guilty pleasure is just like watching TV shows, and I know that's not very exciting. Um, yeah, but I think a big thing for me is being social. Really, I am. Maybe I use my phone a bit too much, but I'm always talking to people. My partner even says to me, like, what are you like, what are you even doing on your phone? I'm always talking to people. I go out so often. Um, and I think that was was hard for me when I first got to recovery because you kind of take a step back and you realize, well, for me anyway, I realized I have all these friends, I have all these people that I know. But what do I have in common with them? And it was drug use, really, partying. That was the main thing I had in common with people. And so it was very hard to not be social and kind of separate myself from that. But I think for me now, being social has been such a big part of my recovery and being able to create this new identity for myself and, you know, like have people see that that Alicia that existed once doesn't really exist anymore and I'm different. I'm not like who I was before. I'm a different person. Um, I That's do cool. a lot of I do a lot of like outdoor activities as well. I'm like a scout leader for like the teenage group. We call them venturers here. Um, I think that's universal actually venturers. But um, yeah, and that that helps a lot doing you know going for hikes doing things like caving um you know having some other kind of purpose and you know it's it can be hard when you have like anxiety and stuff and you 
make um, make commitments and then you're like, oh, I have to follow through with them. But um, doing things to keep you accountable. Yeah, and exercise is important, even if you're just walking around. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a, my, my psychiatrist says that exercise should be part of your DNA. And I think that's true. Oh, I, I totally agree. And personally, I, I think the same about meditation. The little yeah. mind just kind of getting centered. Um, so it begs the question, what's the creepiest thing you've ever seen in a cave? Creepiest thing I've ever seen in a cave? Hmm. Probably some bones. And when you go past and you're like, animal hopefully Hopefully. yeah Yeah, hopefully an animal and there's like only parts of it and you're sort of like "Mm, gonna just keep going past that one maybe i won't go down that one (laughs) yeah i'll I'll leave that go yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) you know one thing about recovery i've I've mentioned this before in some of my old podcasts so i have a friend of mine um and it's interesting even if you think you know what you see you, you sometimes don't know what you see He's a pretty high-profile person, um, and um, he's in recovery. And we would go to the cigar place and we'd have a couple of cigars. And there were times that if, let's say, you and I were together and we're at the cigar place, we'd both take our phones out and we don't talk for 20, 25 minutes. And if you look at that, you say, look at these two people. They're looking at their phones. They should be having a conversation. The truth is he was in a place where he didn't want to be alone but he just had to collect his thoughts and he wanted to be with somebody. And sometimes the best thing you do is just sit, just sit with somebody, right? And just understand. And, and, and I remember one time I get goosebumps about it. He said to me, um, Darren, thanks for understanding. And I'm, I was like, all I'm doing is looking at my phone too. You know, sometimes you just need to be around. You mentioned that with it. That's what triggered the thought to me about socializing. You want to be around people but you don't want to engage and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you probably would have heard of that um, rat city uh, mm-hmm. experiment where like, you know, they have like some some drug in, in the water and if the rats are isolated, they tend to go to get the, the water more so that they get, they feel something, some yes. kind of, you know, positive thing but if they're able to socialize with all the other rats they don't use it or you know use it a lot less and um what you said has like triggered a memory for me as well um my friend david uh he was someone that actually introduced me to opioids and a lot of my other friends didn't like him for that but um you know he, he was a good friend of mine and he passed away a few years ago, I think maybe four or five years ago now. He was, he was quite young, you know, what, like 24 or something, 23, 24. And oh, he, he passed away from an overdose and um, it was apparently intentional. He had left a note, but we never got to hear what the note said. And um, it was really hard for me. Like, obviously that's hard, but... Um, for me, it had this added element because for a while there, particularly at the end, it was, it was only like, it was within a year of me getting sober or, you know, like going like drug free. And during my, that, that early period of sobriety, I would meet up with him still and he would use in my car and 
he would virtually overdose every time and it became so stressful for me and you know I was being I was sober and I would do that and I had like this internal conflict like you know this isn't I don't I don't want my life to be this anymore but also like I did it for way longer than I was comfortable doing because I didn't want him to be alone and for a while I was like so upset with myself because I was like man you know like if I hadn't stopped using he would have been using with me and he wouldn't have you know just like died in the canal you know he wouldn't have gone somewhere alone like that and done that but I know we can't do that to ourselves but yeah but like it comes back to the whole isolation thing he you know he was so like if maybe if he had been using at home then it would have been noticed you know you can go oh what if what if what if but like if he hadn't been so socially isolated he wouldn't have been using on his own all those times and you know he wouldn't have been able to go and do that and if he there had been more like harm reduction things like more more places that he could go and use like judgment free and mm-hmm. you know he, he then maybe that wouldn't have happened and maybe if he'd been able to speak about his trauma he wouldn't he would still be here and he'd be able to work through it and also you know he had the shame of like trying to do university and like being so unable to he was so smart and he just wasn't able to get through it because of his addictions and he was never able to talk to anyone about his addictions you can go to like the student center and be like oh, I've got like these physical illnesses I've got mental illness but you can't talk about addiction you can't exactly. it's like, oh keep it to yourself you know? so and it happens to physicians too no, it's, it's, it's horrible. Um, and we've both seen it. Um, yeah. And I will talk about your friend. Um, and I'm not just saying this to placate. You gave him the grace that you're talking about that you wish others would have. And yeah. Well, not everybody lives with grace. You did. You gave him that grace. And I tell people sometimes all the time where, and sometimes all the time sounds kind of weird, but it's <laughs> What I mean by that is when they ask, I tell them, I just want to get the person through tonight. Tomorrow, we'll take care of tomorrow. But right now, I'm going to do what I can. And we mentioned earlier about you have to lie sometimes to people. I'll give you a great example of, of lying. This one friend that I told you about, he's an example, but there are others. I'll get a phone call sometimes or a text message. Hey, at three in the morning, four in the morning. Well, now we're both on, on, on social media a lot. People who live far away. I'll always lie and they'll say, did I wake you? No, I could have been sound asleep, but I'm, no, I'm up. What's up? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> because sometimes they just, I get goosebumps, but they just need a voice. And they certainly don't need to feel guilty that they woke me up. You know, yeah. so it, it's little subtle things like that, you know, um, you never know what might trigger in a good way somebody making it through the night. And you, we can't take it upon ourselves to cure the world. We won't. But if there's an action that I could take that can help that person, I would say that you extended your friend's life by sitting with him. Um, 
because I, of I, I think so. I do actually think so. And it's, yeah, it's like it's a lot for one person to, it shouldn't be one person's role, you know, like we need to, we need to do better. Right. So before I let you go, we'll kind of wrap up. Um, you know, it's summer here, it's winter there. Um, so Alicia Bazina, tell people what winter is like in Sydney, Australia. The houses in Australia have terrible insulation for the cold. <laughs> My house is colder inside than it is outside. It's weird. We've had a lot of rain and floods this year and they've been like catastrophic for northern New South Wales and Queensland. Um, and, you know, coming back to Indigenous stuff, it's areas that Indigenous people said decades ago, you shouldn't build houses here. Um, you know, this is a flood area and, yeah, and heaps of houses have been lost. Um, yeah, it's quite, it gets down to maybe like four degrees lately, like four mm -hmm. degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. Um, it's cold. Yeah, windy. It's cold. Cold. Yeah, it, it's windy. It's, um, but if you look outside, it's sunny. It's still sunny, which is oh, nice. Yeah, it's it's not well, bad. If you if, if you and your partner ever come out to California, please you be mine and my wife's guest. Um, yeah, I think you're a terrific person. I think um, you are incredibly interesting. I think you help people today. Thank you for the way that you help people as a nurse. You're saving lives. Um, thank you for having the courage to share your story. And uh, I'm honored uh, to now call you friend. Thank, thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you for having me. I hope to talk to you again. Oh, we absolutely will. Take care now. Yeah, if you ever come to Sydney, you've got a place to stay. <laughs> thank you. I, I'll take you guys up on that. Bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. <laughs>